Okay. In terms of uh, announcements, the main announcement is that this Saturday morning is the men's prayer breakfast. So look forward to having you men come and join for fellowship and a good breakfast uh, Saturday morning. And then we have our uh, monthly deacons meeting at uh, 9 o'clock. And one of the reasons we're meeting on Saturday, as we always do this time of year, is because on Sunday morning we will have our annual uh, congregational meeting, and that will immediately follow the morning worship service uh, on uh, on Sunday. And so the deacons get together to just make sure we have all of the things ready to go for the congregational meeting uh, Sunday morning. So be uh, be aware of that. Uh, the other announcement I have is um, I, w- I received a couple of complimentary copies of a short book here called For Thou Art With Me, Biblical Help for the Terminally Ill and Those Who Love Them by Bruce Baker. Now, most of you know Bruce. He's a pastor of Washington County Bible Church. He's spoken at Chafer Conference, and he has um, ALS. Uh, otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, he's had to, he's in the process of stepping down from the pulpit because he just can't get enough breath or air. He only has about 30 to 40 percent lung capacity now, and um, and there's no cure for this. And some people last a long time, uh, some people not so long. And he's always a part of our, or almost always a part of our Friday morning pastors group, and he just has one of the best mental attitudes that you can imagine. He's just a, just a tremendous witness. And so this is a, a book he wrote this last, last summer, and it is, uh, <clears throat> it, if you know anyone that has been diagnosed with a terminal disease or their family who's taking care of them, then this is a, a, a very good biblical orientation uh, to teach about the kind of uh, what your relationship with the Lord should be, the promises and mental framework you should adopt uh, at such time. So it's a great book focused on uh, comfort and on biblical truth. So it is published by Grace Acres Press, and according to the back cover, it is also available as an ebook. So that's you can probably look for it as well on on Amazon. How shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to make sure that we are all in right relationship with the Lord, which means that we need to make sure that we have been uh, spiritually cleansed of sin, forgiven, and in right relationship with the Holy Spirit, that we may continue our forward momentum in the spiritual life. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, we're thankful that you, we have your grace that has provided a perfect, complete salvation, that there's nothing that we can add to that work of Christ on the cross, that he paid it in full. He wiped out the certificate of debt against us. It was nailed to the cross so that that sin penalty has been wiped out. And the only issue now for every one of us is whether we trust in Christ as Savior. Father, we're thankful that we have your word, for it teaches us the realities of life. It teaches us about adversity and suffering. It talks about how we face and handle these challenges that come our way. Father, as we talk about this, think about this tonight, we're also mindful of Bruce Baker and what he is going through uh, with this disease and, and the tremendous testimony that he is to so, all those around him. And, Father, we just continue to pray for wisdom for the doctors, for his comfort, uh, for his wife, Bonnie, and uh, the family. And, Father, we just uh, pray that your grace would just be manifest in his, in his life. And, uh, Father, we pray for us tonight as we st- continue our study dealing with uh, adversity and suffering in the angelic conflict and that we may come to a greater understanding of the role that uh, testing and adversity plays in our spiritual life and in our testimony uh, to the angels and to uh, other human beings, to those around us, demonstrating the importance, the centrality of you in our lives, and that is what glorifies you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're continuing our study in 1 Peter on the angelic conflict and suffering. This issue of suffering, undeserved suffering, suffering that is beyond anything that we can imagine, is that which is a serious question that many people ask and is a, a block for many people to really be, to believe in God or to uh, believe in the Bible or Christianity, they throw up these objections that how can a loving God allow this kind of sin, this kind of misery, the horrors that are in the world, and and this is a, a stumbling block for, for many people. Two weeks ago, uh, while I was in Kiev, what we sh- the, the video that we showed was the presentation by uh, Dr. Michael Rydelnik at this last December's uh, pre-trip conference in 2018, and he addressed this issue of the problem of evil in relation to the Holocaust. And he began with the uh, recitation of a poem written by Elie Wiesel called Never Shall I Forget. And this was originally part of his work called Night, which is about his experience in the uh, in Auschwitz and being with his father in the in the death camps, and I want to read that to you as a setup for our our study tonight. Bizel writes, "Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke." Never shall I forget the little faces 
of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. That is a profound reflection on the horrors that he witnessed at Auschwitz. Now, he makes a profound statement there as he contemplates this. He says that these flames consumed my faith forever. When you face horrors and adversity and undeserved suffering in life, you have two options. One is to use that as an excuse to turn yourself against God, to become bitter, to become angry, to divorce yourself completely from any kind of explanation based on a divine purpose for suffering and adversity in life. Where that leads is to a worldview that means that life is basically meaningless. And the problem that you have when you reject a loving God allowing evil because there's some higher purpose, there's some greater good that we're incapable of comprehending. The result of turning against God is that, that you really don't have an explanation for evil. Not only do you not have an explanation for evil, but you can't even talk about evil. Because the concepts of evil and good are concepts that are grounded only in a perfectly righteous God. And if the universe isn't the universe that God created that's described in Genesis, then we don't have a basis for talking about good or evil because all we have is just the existence of things and that's the way they are. <clears throat> and that, that leads to just a meaningless existence. But when you don't have an understanding of a biblical, accurate biblical framework, and the reason I say accurate biblical framework is because Elie Wiesel was, was uh, prior to World War II, was an Orthodox Jew. He was uh, extremely observant. Um, <clears throat> if memory serves correctly, I may be wrong, but I think he was uh, pursuing uh, training to be a rabbi. And but the false perspective that he received from Talmudic Judaism did not provide him with an adequate understanding of the greatness, the glory of God, and to understand and comprehend why God allows evil in the universe. And so this is, um, this is extremely difficult. It is, for many Jewish people, a major stumbling block that they use as an excuse to suppress the truth. It's, it's not, it should not be a stumbling block, but like many things that people come up with, to avoid having to face the truth of Scripture, 
they use these things as as an excuse. And of all the events of history, all of the plagues, all of the uh, trauma, the tragedy, all of the injustice, all of the devouring diseases that have come along, and all of the wars, the horrors of war, that nothing quite touches or come close to the evil that was seen by those up close in the Holocaust, otherwise known as, as the Shoah. A few years ago, some of you know this story, some of you do not, but a few years ago, I stood in this pulpit and did the memorial service for my dad. And that was the toughest message I ever had to put together. And it didn't have anything to do with the fact that I was doing a memorial service for my dad because my dad was in heaven. I was totally confident of that and was rejoicing over that. That did not make it difficult or, or, or challenging at all. What made it difficult was that at 2.30 in the morning before that service, I woke up and was thinking about it, and suddenly, and I don't know why I hadn't thought about it before, I realized that in a conversation late the afternoon before, I realized that six of my closest, dearest, unsaved Jewish friends would be coming, and that it would be the best opportunity I've had to uninterruptedly present the gospel. And they were here, and they were down here on this second row, and sat there, and what I had to do that morning was to witness to them without them knowing that's what I was doing, and answer this most profound question that almost every one of them had vocalized at one point or another, and that was, how can you believe in a good God in light of the Holocaust? And so as I lay awake at 2.30 in the morning and thought, how in the world am I going to address this? What occurred to me, and I believe God uh, brought this to my mind, was that I needed to wrap this around Job's experience of undeserved suffering in the book of Job. And that is the biblical framework that we should investigate and need to investigate when we are talking about suffering and adversity. And that's a major theme in First Peter, is that Peter's audience, these uh, saved Jews, Jewish background believers in Christ, were about to face an increase in their suffering and their undeserved uh, suffering and adversity, as we've seen as we've gone through this, this first epistle. And as Peter comes to the end, he tells us, tells them, and warns them to be sober and vigilant, that because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And the solution is to resist him, steadfast in the faith, because, and there's a participle there again, which indicates uh, a a causal idea, because you know something. And we're going to see the same type of construction over in James uh, James 1 later on, because you know that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And these commands to be sober and be vigilant are, <clears throat> at the very beginning, to actually address to a mental attitude. You have to be sober. That means to be self-controlled. Not let emotion run away with you. 
in the midst of a testing, in the midst of undeserved adversity, no matter how bad things might appear, how shocked and surprised you are, uh, like Job. Job, everything's going great, and then Job just hit a brick wall, and it, within a day he loses, loses everything that he has, all of his material possessions and all of his children. And uh, it just happens instantly. And so to not react in emotion and in anger and in bitterness we have to be self-controlled, and that only comes through practicing the faith rest drill to knowing the Bible and using that over and over again for all of the little things that happen in our lives to build up that, that automatic spiritual reflex to get into the Word and apply the Word. And the word uh, Gregorio meaning to be alert or awake, so it's, it's thinking and it's focused on on this whole idea of thinking, and so uh, <clears throat> we began to look at at um, at the this whole topic of what the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare, uh, Satan, and suffering. I defined this initially as the invisible spiritual warfare between the forces of Satan and the forces of God as defined or as it explained in Ephesians 6.10 that our war is not against flesh and blood as much as it appears to be at times that it's human beings that are attacking us or assaulting us. Ultimately, we have to realize it is part of a broader rebellion and a broader conflict. And the reason that I bring that out is because it's amazing that um, with a lot of theologians, and a lot of pastors, there is a recognition on the one hand that there is this this spiritual warfare. But on the other hand, there is a disconnect in understanding that all of human history is related to this angelic rebellion. They believe there's an angelic rebellion, and they see this suffering, and they t- connect it to sin. And in sometimes they they might connect it in uh, a secondary way to 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 Satan's rebellion and what's going on there, but it's rare that they that they do. Uh, they don't see that understanding the angelic conflict is a part of being able to uh, explain what's going on in terms of human history and the human dimension, that these are integrally connected. Now, <clears throat> when I was reading in First Peter, Peter warns that Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The counterpart to that verse in Job is that when Satan and the fallen angels appear before God in the first chapter, we're told that uh, Satan says, God says, where have you been? And he says, I've been going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. So that what Job, I mean, what Satan says in Job 1-7 is exactly what Peter is describing in in First Peter chapter 5, and you can't disconnect the two. I think Peter is specifically and intentionally referring and alluding back to what Satan said in Job 1-7. He's out there cruising the earth personally and also through the intermediate agents of the fallen angels seeking uh, who he can attack and the the uh, adversity, the testing that he can bring 
uh, into their lives. But this is not something, this connection is between the fall of Satan and the angelic rebellion and, uh, and, and the spiritual life and testing is not always connected. Most often it's not. And often, and I read this, I read several things on the internet uh, today that were basically saying this, it, this whole idea of a connection between uh, using the angelic conflict to explain human existence is just it's just too speculative it's it, it, you know they can't this is a problem with a lot of pastors and a lot of theologians is that they can't put one plus two together and come up with anything close to three and and so they consider if if scripture states one and scripture states two Three is a logical deduction that is based on the truth of Proposition 1 and Proposition 2. And the problem is that too many pastors and too many theologians think going beyond the specific statements of Scripture is speculative. And this is what God wants us to do. Now, you can get to where you're no longer supported by Scripture, but if Proposition A... Or Proposition 1 is clearly stated in the Scripture, and Proposition 2 is clearly stated in the Scripture, then because A is true and B is true, C has to be true. Okay, the conclusion based on those, those elements has to also be true. So uh, this is important for understanding uh, understanding this whole doctrine. A f- number of years ago, I had a longtime pastor friend visit visit the church, and came came here with his wife. And uh, <clears throat> afterward, some time afterwards, we were talking about his visit to the church, and he told me afterwards that his wife asked him what I meant by the angelic conflict. And I said, "Well, what did you tell her?" I said, "Well, you know, he got this idea from Bob Theme." Because that that's a doctrine that that Bob Theme taught, and people who've listened to him all hold to that, but nobody else does. The reason I said that is because that is often stated by some people, but it's not true. I find that um, there were a lot of things that Pastor Theme thought that a lot of people said, "Oh, isn't that brilliant?" He never he rarely had any new insights. Just for some of you who who don't know that. Uh, there were very few ideas that he had as the basic foundation that were that were new to him. The idea that he talked about a uh, trial of Satan did not originate with him. It didn't originate with Lewis Berry Chafer. He mentioned it. It did not originate with uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was one of the greatest radio Bible teachers of the 30s, 40s, 50s, until he died in the early 60s. It, it didn't originate with any of them. In fact, of the people that I know who wrote about this earlier, I don't think it originated uh, with them either. In fact, uh, one of the greatest Hebrew scholars of the mid-19th century's name was A.B. Davidson. And Davidson is most widely known by Hebrew students as a grammarian, and his uh, book on Hebrew grammar was one of my textbooks in uh, Advanced Hebrew Grammar. And he understood the importance of interpreting Job as a legal conflict between Yahweh and Lucifer. And he states 
that the book of Job is devoted to an exhibition of the trial of Job. Clearly stated that this is mid to late 19th century, and he understood that that this was teaching about this conflict between God and, and Satan that went back before the creation of the universe. And so he understood that this was teaching that we needed to understand history in terms of this heavenly trial. In a more modern context, a modern author by the name of Philip Yancey uh, writes in an article that was part of a collection of articles put together by Roy Zook, who was uh, also a professor of mine at Dallas Seminary, who uh, wrote the commentary on Job in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. He wrote uh, a standalone commentary on the book of Job, and that was particularly a significant uh, book for him. And Philip Yancey writes that, according to the Bible, human history is far more than the rising and falling of people and nations. It is a staging ground for the battle of the universe. Hence, what seems like an ordinary action in the seen world may have an extraordinary effect on the unseen world. Much of that effect, however, remains hidden from our view, except for the occasional glimpses granted us in places like Job." The point that I'm making here is that this idea that that the angelic rebellion, Satan's rebellion against God, has a direct impact on our spiritual lives, and we can't see it. Job, In Job, we see the curtain pulled back so that we see what goes on behind the scenes, and that helps us to understand what can be transpiring when we're facing what we believe to be undeserved suffering. Now, as I started this in the last uh, few lessons, I've been gone now the last three Thursday nights because I was uh, in Kiev, I addressed the issue of who is Lucifer and Satan, and how did Lucifer or Satan fall into sin? And in doing that, we looked at uh, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, and it should be no surprise to you that the popular view among a lot of Old Testament scholars today who are quite conservative in many other areas are to deny that one or both of those passages are talking about Satan. They have other explanations, but they don't connect that to the fall of Satan. Well, if those two passages don't refer to the origin of evil in the universe, then we have a problem because because then... There's nothing in the Bible to inform us about the origin of evil, and in all non-biblical religions, you have this dualism of an eternal existence of evil and an eternal existence of good. But I was teaching on this tangentially when I was in Kiev. I taught on rewards and judgments, and one of the judgments that we talk about is the final judgment of Satan, and that brings in the initial judgment of Satan, which indicates his trial, Matthew 26, uh, 41, indicating that uh, the devil and his angels uh, are going to be cast into the lake of fire, which has been prepared for them, and that's a perfect tense verb, indicating that the lake of fire already exists. 
and that that means that and that they've obviously been condemned and sentenced to the lake of fire but they are not there so that raises a critical question that is not uh usually uh, mentioned in most things it's overlooked why is it that that satan and the fallen angels have not been consigned to the lake of fire yet why are they still active. Now, we know that there are some angelic beings who are in chains of darkness, according to Second Peter 2 in the book of Jude. We know that there are other angels that are confined in the abyss awaiting the uh, fifth and sixth trumpet judgments to be released at that point. But why is it that 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 Satan is not punished yet and that that doesn't come until later? And so this is helps us to understand this. Well, we went back and we looked at this and Isaiah chapter uh, 14. And so I was taking them through this. And when I teach this over there, I use Logos Bible software because I'm able to configure the screen so that in one window I have the Russian text. In another window, I have the English text. And in a third window, I have the the Greek or Hebrew text. They've, they're all studying Greek and Hebrew, so they can look, we can look at that in common, and I can talk about the original language, and then they can tell me, and they, they usually do, how the Russian text is, is off in terms of the, its translation of the Greek text. What's interesting is that there are a lot of times when the Russian synodal text what, what what was that noise? No, I didn't want to do that. Let me brighten that up. I was looking for my sound there. In the Russian synodal text, sometimes it's more accurate than the English text. So it's it's sometimes I'll start talking about something. And I'll say, well, the Russian says that. Oh, okay, so I don't need to correct the translation. So it's it's interesting to work with that. So anyhow, we were working on uh, taking him through this, this verse, and I was explaining that the term, the name Lucifer came out of the Vulgate. We talked about this a couple of lessons back. But actually, the, the word there is the uh, Hebrew word halal, which has to do with... Uh, a, a br- the bright and morning star. That's how it's usually translated, a bright star or morning star, son of the dawn. Uh, the whole Hebrew phrase being Halal bin Shahar. Now, I've done, as you, most of you know, just a little bit of work on the Hebrew text in this over the years. Back in 1989, Tommy and I wrote the uh, Spiritual Warfare book. It came out in 1990, and we did all of our due diligence and word studies and everything there. And then when I was uh, working at RB Theme Junior Bible Ministries in the mid-'90s, I re-edited and rewrote the um, Satan and Demonism book, and again, did did all of the due diligence in looking up the names and everything. And I've read a number of uh, articles about this over the years. So I really haven't gone back to the newer lexicons that have come out in the last 20 years specifically to look up these terms because I've, I've done that so much. But I was surprised. And I thought I would show you this because it's an interesting observation. So... 
I'm going to, I'll have to stop that. Okay, and switch to Logos. Okay, here on the screen, what you have in the, as you're facing it, the left panel is Isaiah 14:12, And you should be able to read that. Can you read that from the back row? No? Okay, let me bump it up a little bit. Okay. Now, now you should be able to read that, and you should be able to read. I think that's uh, most important. So here we have how you have fallen from heaven. Lucifer, here's our Hebrew word right here. It reads from right to left, Hillel. And so if I click on that, the Hebrew-Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament goes directly to that word. Now, Halot came out, started coming out in the early to late 90s. I think the date on the copyright is from 93 to 2001. So it wasn't available. It was very, it was very expensive in the print edition, and it was based on an earlier lexicon called the Kohler Baumgartner lexicon, which I did have. And so I've, I've gone back and I've looked at that, and there was something new that came out. See, up until then, the standard lexicon since 1919 was this lexicon by Brown, Driver, and Briggs, affectionately referred to by Hebrew students as BDB. Now, BDB was published in 1919. That's 100 years ago now. And in the, in the mid-'90s, that was 80 years and there were a lot of things that had been discovered, not to mention just the Dead Sea Scrolls and a number of other um, Hebrew writings that informed us much more about the meaning of Hebrew words. When BDB came out, the only thing that you had was was biblical Hebrew and some rabbinical t- uh, Talmudic uh, lexicons, and it was actually uh, based on a 19th century lexicon called uh, by Gesenius. So if you look at this word in the the verb in the Hebrew, it refers, it gives the Arabic meaning as beginning to shine because Arabic is a cognate language to Hebrew. And so a lot of times when you don't know what a word means in Hebrew, you look at all the cognate languages because Semitic languages are very close together. And then it lists also another Arabic word, hilalim, meaning new moon. And that's the idea, is that it meant um, something that shined. And so the noun, which is what's used over here in the text, meant um, also to shine, or shining one, and it takes you to Isaiah chapter uh, chapter 14 uh, for, for that purpose. Here, here it is right here. Uh, it means shining one. So if you were looking up this word up until the late 90s, you list saw one meaning, the shining one. Well, I was surprised when I went to the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon, and this popped up, and as part of the meaning, it suggests the morning star or crescent moon. Now, that is a suggestion based upon the uh, work by Schrader, uh, this is an abbreviation for it. Let me. It doesn't show what that means, but it lists Isaiah fourteen twelve as uh, where that is used. How interesting! Well, just recently, a new uh, 
um, Hebrew lexicon that's uh, about eight or nine volumes now. This one was three volumes, so you see they're getting bigger and there. And this newer uh, dictionary is called the uh, Dictionary of Classical Hebrew, and it just became available in Lagos in the last year. And so I had, I had that, and I went to went to that. Let me see here, the Dictionary of Classical Hebrew, and so. It's moved from a suggested cognate, meaning crescent moon, to where it lists Hilal as morning star, comma, crescent moon. Now it's moved up as a primary meaning for this word. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, why is that interesting? Well, let me go back to the slide, and I will show you. There we go. This is a chart of the flags of Muslim nations. Now, remember, Allah was originally one of 360 gods in the uh, Arabic pantheon prior to Islam. He was the moon god. And so part of his symbol was a crescent moon. And that is picked up in these, these flags. When Muhammad came along, he dumped the other gods because it, the Quran, which he was uh, an quote angel, an angel of light, meaning a, either Satan or another demon, revealed the Quran to him. And 18 years ago, when we were all forced to start studying uh, Islam because of 9 11, uh, I became convinced that Allah was just another name for Satan. And so this kind of fits that, doesn't it? Look at how many of these Muslim nations have as the symbology on their flag a crescent moon and a morning star, which is exactly what Halal is said to mean in the classical Hebrew dictionary. Now, this isn't based on modern Hebrew. This isn't some Jews coming along and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to go after Islam. This is their understanding of the meaning of these words based on ancient texts, not based on modern texts, and they wouldn't even think about associating it with Islam probably. But you have all of these different countries, Algeria, Azerbaijan, uh, Comoros, uh, Jordan has a star, you have uh, Libya has a crescent moon and a star, Malaysia, Mar- Mauritania. You have uh, so- Sawari, and I'm not even sure where this is, Sawari Arab has a crescent moon and a star. Pakistan has a crescent moon and a star. Turkey has a crescent moon and a star. Turkmenistan has five stars and a crescent moon. And Uzbekistan has three stars and a crescent moon. And Tunisia also has a star and a crescent moon. So this is... I do not believe this is coincidental that the symbol for uh, for Allah is a crescent moon and a star, and the name for the fallen angel of Isaiah chapter 14 is a term that refers to either a crescent moon or a star. So gives us a new perspective of who Satan is. Now, <clears throat> the term Satan means adversary or accuser. He is, um, he's like a prosecuting attorney. 
He is bringing a legal charge against Christians. This is a legal term. Now, I'm going to build a case on this because we have this uh, theory that is set forth from biblical, some biblical theologians that what happens in the ancient world is, or in the uh, pre-creation, uh, prehistoric time, rather, in eternity past, there's a trial conducted by God over Satan and the fallen angels, and that human history is directly related to the decision of that trial. Now, one of the things that I'm going to point out is that again and again and again, as we go through Scripture, we see the spirit, salvation, the spiritual life, God's relationship to human beings, all de- defined and communicated within the framework of legal vocabulary. Now, why is it that, that God again and again and again uses courtroom language to relate to to describe man's relationship to him? Words like justification, imputation, confession, reconciliation, forgiveness, uh, and many, many others are terms that relate to the courtroom. That's the, the framework out of which they come. So why is it that you have so much in Scripture de- described in this kind of legal language? Satan as, acu- as an accuser is said to be such in Revelation 12.10. This is just uh, before it's describing his the fact that he's kicked out of heaven in Revelation 13. And uh, John says, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. This is, I said Revelation 13, a minute ago, I meant Revelation 12. He's been cast down. So he's cast out of heaven halfway through the tribulation. So until then, he still has access to heaven along with the fallen angels, which is the background for understanding uh, Job chapter 1. In Zechariah chapter 3, we have another picture of this legal position that he takes in relation to Joshua the high priest. Zechariah is recording the vision that he has seen that this angel is showing him, and he says, referring to the, that the uh, revealing angel, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So Satan is the accuser here who is opposing Christ who is standing as the defense attorney for Joshua. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. So this is another clear passage that teaches multiple persons in the Trinity. How many persons do you see? The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. So the first Lord here is the uh, angel of the Lord, And the second Lord refers to God the Father. And so you have two persons mentioned here, two divine persons. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, referring to Joshua, not a brand plucked from the fire? That became a famous 
a quote by John Wesley who referred to his salvation as a, being a brand plucked from the fire. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. That's the picture of our righteousness. It is as filthy rags, Isaiah uh, 64, 6. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying that this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking here. Uh, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to to him, that is to Joshua, he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. This is an illustration of how we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This is a visual image of the imputation of righteousness. So the sin is removed, and he is clothed with a clean garment. And verse uh, verse 5, and I said, let them put a clean turban, a turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts and I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. The point is what gives him standing is this new clothing, the righteousness of Christ, the imputation of that righteousness. But what we see here is that the role of Satan is as the accuser who is bringing a charge against the brethren. It happens in the Old Testament. It happens uh, through the New Testament. There's further evidence that uh, the angelic conflict is a background for understanding biblical history. Why does God create man? And I'm going to present this. There are 22 reasons, and we'll go through them fairly rapidly. I'll talk a little bit about them. But I took these from my friend Wendell Bell. Wendell has been here many times. Wendell uh, is a um, MD. He's a psychiatrist, but he's got a lot of biblical training. He went to Bob Jones, didn't get sucked into the legalism there, or afterward he found grace and got out of it. But Wendell has been working for a number of years on a commentary on Job. And I will tell you that uh, because he's taken some Hebrew in the past and he's a good biblical student, he's done a better job of dealing with the issues in Job than almost any THM student. This This is clear PhD kind of work. And he's done a magnificent job of it and shows that, I mean, he quotes from a huge array of uh, of sources. In fact, I wasn't even familiar with the fact that A.B. Davidson had written a commentary on Job until I ran across it in Wendell's footnotes and I immediately ordered it. And uh, he's just done a tremendous job, but he did a good job summarizing all of the reasons that we believe that there is this cosmic trial between God and Satan and that human history provides the uh, the evidence in support of God as opposed to uh, opposed to Satan. So let's just run through these. Uh, first of all, the fact that Lucifer and his angels sentenced to the lake of fire has been delayed. I pointed that out, Matthew uh, twenty five forty one. This has been uh, this is is not typically discussed by theologians. Why has 
Satan not been sent to the lake of fire if he's been convicted and the lake of fire has been created for him. Second, Scripture teaches that mankind is said to have been created a little lower than the angels. But we will be elevated above the angels in the future. What's going on there? Why are we created at a lower level than the angels if not to teach something uh, from which they can learn? Third, the fact that the execution of the sentence, Satan is cast not into the lake of fire at the end of the tribulation. He is bound for a thousand years. And then at the end of human history, at the end of the millennial kingdom, then he's cast into the lake of fire. Why do we have the creation of the lake of fire before human history and it is at the end of human history that Satan is finally sent to the lake of fire? That has to be explained uh, by whatever framework you're using to explain human history and God, why God created man. Fourth, the fact that human history lies between the pronouncement of the sentence on Lucifer and his angels and its execution. Okay, um, fifth, the fact that Lucifer and his angels continue to have access to heaven. Why, if they've convicted, do they still have access to heaven? Why, why do they come in these angelic convocations? Sixth, the fact that all angels have appointed times to appear before Yahweh. That comes out of Job chapter 1. There's an appointed time for them to appear before the throne of God. Seventh, <coughs> The many examples of courtroom scenes in heaven. We have this again and again and again. I'll mention uh, some of the passages related to that as we go through our study. Eighth, the fact that in relationship to mankind, Lucifer is called Satan, a technical term for a uh, an accuser, a legal accuser, as well as the devil, uh, which is a title meaning adversary or accuser like a prosecuting attorney. Ninth, the fact that Satan had access to Adam and the woman in the Garden of Eden. What was that all about? How do you explain what is going on? There's more information that's not revealed. Why does this creature is he why is this creature allowed to indwell the serpent and to tempt the woman? That in and of itself indicates that what's going on between Adam and Eve and God is directly related to this um, tempter, the, the devil. Tenth, the fact that in the book of Job, Satan appears in heaven before God in a courtroom scene, and God directs his attention to Job so that something is going to be demonstrated through the life of Job that is relevant to an a, uh, evidentiary hearing where evidence is being provided uh, in favor of God rather than Satan. Eleventh, the facts of Jesus' temptation by Satan. Why is Jesus tempted by Satan? That is a uh, That has to be correlated to the temptation of Eve by Satan in Genesis 3, and that has to be understood as a failure by the first human beings and uh, success by uh, by the God-man. Twelfth, the involvement of Satan with unbelievers 
to blind them to the truth and with believers to keep them from fellowship with God and spiritual maturation. Why do we have this conflict? Why is Satan blinding the minds of of unbelievers? Just as a side point, since we've been talking about Calvinism and Arminianism in our study in Ephesians, if Calvinism is correct, that man's spiritual death is such that he is completely unable to even exercise any kind of positive volition, that man is completely unable to understand the truth unless he is regenerated first, then why does Satan need to blind unbelievers? If they're spiritually dead, they can't see the truth anyway. So why does he need to blind them? Eleventh, or excuse me, we did 12 already. Let's go to 13. The fact that the demons, which are fallen angels, uh, were cast out by Jesus, suggesting he was tormenting them before their time. Remember, Jesus cast out the legion of, of demons out of the man that was in the tombs. And what they said to him, why are you sending, are you, no, they asked him, are you sending us to the abyss ahead of our time? Now, the abyss is where Satan is cast and chained during the thousand years. My belief is that that's not just Satan, that's all of the fallen angels. Satan's name is used as the head of the group, and it includes all of the group. That is a pretty standard way of of, uh, using language. We will refer to what Russia is doing by talking about what Putin is doing. We'll talk about American policy by using just the president's name. We'll talk about the idiocy in the House of Representatives by just using Pelosi's name. We often refer to an entire group by the leader's name, and we're not referring to only the leader, but all who are involved with the leader. So when uh, they uh, when they say to Jesus, "Why are you going to cast us into the abyss before our time?" I think this indicates that they're cast into the abyss at the same time as Satan during the millennium. Fourteenth, uh, the fact that the Bible says that believers will judge angels, we're elevated above the angels, and we will judge angels. And this indicates something uh, related to the angelic uh, conflict. Fifteenth, the fact that the Bible mentions God's demonstration of his character. To whom is he demonstrating his character? Why is that handled if it is not setting forth of evidence related to whatever claims Satan has made, even though they're not specifically stated in the Scripture? Sixteenth, the fact that angels are said to watch and be curious about human affairs. They learn things from us. Angels observe us because we are able to teach them something about the grace of God that they did not understand in terms of the way God created angels and the way angelic history developed. A seventeenth reason... There's a lengthier one. The fact that some fallen angels, this is from Jude, did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. This refers to the sons of God in Genesis 6. It's described in Jude verse 6. And they have been reserved in everlasting chains until judgment. Peter calls them chains of darkness. So the this subset of fallen angels that left their uh, first abode, 
is going to be judged, and right now they're in a holding cell. They're in jail, in chains of darkness, awaiting a future judgment. Again, that fits within this framework of a heavenly trial. Uh, 18th, the fact that after his resurrection, but before his ascension, Jesus descended to uh, where the fallen angels are in in the uh, in Tartarus uh, to announce his victory. Why does he need to do that unless what he accomplished on the cross is somehow related to that angelic rebellion? Nineteenth, the fact that the divine plan for mankind involves two components a period of human volition, such as the angels had a period of volition before uh, it was finally locked into uh, positive or negative, and then a period of grace. So that's, that's the point there. When the, the, the expression of the love of God in relation to his righteousness and justice relates to this whole angelic rebellion, and we'll get into this a little more to explain all those details. 20th, the fact that Lucifer and his angels attempt to influence uh, human history uh, through his influence uh, and uh, th- through this influence and the power of Dick uh, Anyway, they attempt to influence, that's Daniel chapter, Daniel chapter 10, that you have angels, fallen angels who are attempting to influence human governments. Uh, 21, the fact that Lucifer attempts to thwart the divinely established course of human history, such as, an, uh, such as attempting to thwart the overall plan of God, the purity of the human race, to attempt to destroy the Jews, to attempt to destroy Jesus. Uh, this explains why this is going on. Satan is trying to win his victory against God. And then point 22, the fact that angels desire to look into the plan of God for mankind's salvation in 1 Peter 1.12. Now, when you take all of those together, there's an inference there that there is something going on in terms of this relationship of human history and our lives to something that is spoken of in Scripture again and again in terms of courtroom scenarios and courtroom language. And so the only logical conclusion that explains all of this data is that human history is related to this trial of the angels, and since the sentence on Satan has not been uh, fully implemented, then there must be some sort of uh, response from Satan challenging the, uh, the, the veracity of the verdict. Uh, claiming something against the character of God, uh, claiming that God hasn't given him a chance to prove in what he can do, something along those lines. It's not specifically stated uh, in the Scripture. And so the testing, one area of testing that comes to believers that is not related to 
the fact that we have done something wrong. It's not related to divine discipline. It's not related to bad decisions. It's not related simply to living in a fallen world, but it is related to a higher purpose of demonstrating some eternal spiritual truths about the character, the grace, the love, and the righteousness of God. And so that helps us to then explain the presence of evil and why God allows this to work itself out in human history. And so we will see that in more detail as we come back in the next couple of lessons to look at what happens in Job and the testing there and how that is related in uh, the New Testament. It's interesting that, that Job is only mentioned in one New Testament book and that's James. And the theme of James is to encourage believers to uh, endure, to persevere in times of testing. And that's why Job is brought in. It's not uh, the patience of Job. It's the endurance. It's the hupomones, the endurance of Job. And so uh, all of this comes together for us to Uh, give us a greater understanding of what Peter's alluding to when he warns us to be sober and vigilant because Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, to study these things and to get this overview of the angelic conflict and to understand that this is uh, a, an embedded doctrine in scripture that is uh, implicit rather than explicit, that it, uh, is something that is uh, that is there on almost every page, and once we come to put it all together, it helps explain the whole. And it explains for us and strengthens us in our spiritual life to be able to handle and face whatever, uh, whatever perceived injustices that we encounter, undeserved suffering that we encounter, that we might uh, recognize that we are a witness for you uh, to glorify you and to show that your grace, your love, your righteousness and justice are sufficient. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.